Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a special edition featuring highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference held on May 18, 2019 in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in Midtown Manhattan. The conference panel, Fact and Speculation, featured award-winning authors Stacey Schiff, Gretchen Holbrook-Gerzina, and Michael Haney. The discussion was moderated by BIO founder and biographer James McGrath-Morris. Um. Folks, welcome to uh, the last round of panels. This one is called Fact and Speculation. Anyone who writes a biography should be here because this is the problem we run into. Um, This morning I heard this wonderful description of, I'm gonna use it forever, Um, when you run into a problem, like you have somebody's letters from 1850 to 55, but you don't have 55 to 60. Somebody described fixing that problem as a comb over. (laughs) And the other person replied, yeah, as if we would notice. But we all run into these problems writing. Um, And uh, a friend of mine who is not a biographer but has traveled with me on research trips hates a particular construction that we used to find in books a lot. In the small town of so-and-so is such-and-such a restaurant. Had so-and-so eaten there, he would have most certainly enjoyed their famous lobster. Um, So every time we enter a restaurant, my friend Dean says, had, and he picks the subject, eaten here, he would have certainly enjoyed their grilled cheese. We have really three absolutely wonderful authors (laughs) who each have run into problems that relate to this, and I've asked them each to make sure they try to be as specific as possible for us in methods that they might have used that we could steal from them, which is acceptable. Um, so I'm, I just, it's at random, Stacy. I promise you, I, I'm starting with you at random, not because you're sitting next to me. But um, part of the reason I was hoping you'd be on this panel is you wrote about somebody um, which lacked paper records, lacked a lot of records. Um, and this morning you described how you figured out what she read. I'm referring to Stacy's book on Cleopatra, which struck me as really facing a difficult task since... Um, since you couldn't go to Cleopatra's archives. So what are some of the speculative problems you ran into and how did you overcome them when you did that book? Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously the the book was a bit of a joke in our house for years because it was sort of, I'll start work on the book once her diaries turn up. Um, And so obviously documentation was, was thin if not scant. And what I essentially did was I went where the material took me, and that meant not writing about some things, writing about others, admitting what we can't possibly know, and building on things that had been purported um, possibly as factual, but which made sense for the following reasons. And I'll give an example of that. We all know from Shakespeare, if nothing else, about Cleopatra and Caesar's um, trip down the Nile. In fact, there's no contemporary documentation for the fact that two of them took this elaborate cruise. And the first person to mention it mentions it 110 years after um, the purported cruise. It's Lucan, the poet, who's much more interested in the imagery and and the poetry than he is in the truth. However, we do know that any foreign dignitary who came to Egypt was treated to a 
very lavish trip along the Nile. We know that a minor um, official, and a truly minor official, like a tax collector who took a trip along the Nile had, an, had a retinue of 25 to 30 people. We know he would order 327 suckling pigs for his retinue. We, you know, we have lots of detail. And we know that Cleopatra and Caesar had every reason that year to take a trip on the Nile for political reasons, because she needed to show her people the, the, the power of Rome, and he needed to see the wealth of Egypt. So building on the fact that there was no possible way that Caesar, a curious man who, with a great interest in science, who would have wanted to know the answer to the greatest mystery of the time, which is what was the source of the Nile, it is absolutely inconceivable that he would have been in Egypt and not tried to take this trip with Cleopatra, or that for political reasons the two would not have cemented their union in this kind of symbolic way, showing each other off to the people of Egypt. So you know, here was a place where I had no contemporary documentation of the fact that this had happened, but it didn't feel like there was any way that, this, that they could not have made this trip. And so there the, the problem was simply finding the right detail, um, finding the right contemporary detail for how they would have made this trip. I, I'm normally not going to follow up questions, but I want to ask you because it's a parallel here. Um, Edmund Morris's first volume on, on Teddy Roosevelt has him the day he's appointed to the Civil Service Commission, he runs up the stairs. Well, being a biographer, of course, I turned to the end notes, and Morris says that Roosevelt was always known to run upstairs. And I thought to myself, well, what happened if he had a bunion that day? Yeah, that <laughs> so how we write those sentences makes a big difference in the sense that you could, you could write it that, you know, he went into the building um, and, you know, saw stairs. He frequently ran upstairs. Questions for you is this is really fascinating. It's like, it's like uh, a huge detective thing where you've got the conditions right, but when you came to writing your report, how did you write it that she went up the river as definitive, or did you ex share with the readers how you came to that conclusion? How did you tackle that? There, I don't think there's any page in that, in that book that doesn't have a shadow of, yeah. of doubt hanging over it, and the way I did that was, and this didn't occur to me until a year or two into the research, by, rem by reminding the reader at all times who the sources are. And in the case of Cleopatra, it's particularly delicious because you have, Cleopatra is a Greek woman whose life is written by Roman men. So there's initial, so they're all of them antip antipathetic to her in every way. Um, but they have every reason for political reasons to, uh, to instead of erasing her as they most would most women in history, to um, actually make her larger than life because that magnified Octavian's victory over her. So you have an enormous chorus of people um, who have political animus, but who are at the other time interested in magnifying Cleopatra's role. But who they are and what their agenda is, is on every page of the book. And that was the way I worked around the problem of the, t the tendentious and very, and very scant sources. Great, we're gonna get back to you. Gretchen, you ran into a number of problems that you wanted to share with us about a dearth of materials or holes that you had to fill. In my first couple of biographies, I um, had too much material. In fact, I had written The Life of Frances Hodgson Burnett and finished it and finally managed to track down her great-granddaughter who said, you'd better come to Texas. So I went to Texas, um, and she had a, an entire garage filled with letters had, had, which had been withheld from a previous biographer, um, photographs, um, artwork, um, just a tremendous amount of stuff, so I ended up rewriting the book. Um, and the same thing happened when I wrote a book about Dora Carrington of the Bloomsbury Group. I had tons of material and traveled all over the place finding them. When I turned to write the life of an African-American former slave who'd lived 
in New England in the 18th century that there was nothing. I, I don't know what gave me the nerve to think that I could find out the things that would create this life. There was a legend that Lucy Terry Prince had been the first she had that she had argued in front of the Supreme Court that she and I found this to be true the the Supreme Court wasn't quite true um, that she was the first African American poet in fact oh, one of her poems that survives precedes uh, predates Phyllis Wheatley's work um, but she lived in western Massachusetts and later in Vermont and how do you find this there are no letters there are no um, journals there are no images the first publicist for that book asked me if I had a photograph of her, um, and I pointed out that photography hadn't been invented. <laughs> so, you know, what do you do? You start doing what Stacy just talked about. You find the historical context. You try to piece it together. Um, I had to do a few things. One was that the, the historic Deerfield has all of the ledger books from every merchant in town at that time. And I was able to go through all the ledger books and find out anybody who did business with her husband or sold anything to her. Um, I also managed to find in a town clerk's office a, a one-page medical record, um, which we took to a medical society because at that time they did not have, they did not diagnose. They put in abbreviated Greek and Latin the treatment and then from that, you could work backward to try to find out what was being treated. From that, I found out that she'd probably lost a child um, soon after childbirth. I found the birth records of her children um, and were able to build a thing. And finally, two important things happened that I had never anticipated. Um, the first was that after a year or two of working on it, I turned to two people for help. The first was my husband who had been recently let off from his job as an account manager. He's an Italian-American who had never studied history um, or literature. Well, he read some stuff. Um, and I said, you're going to have to help me. I have to go back to work. So he began to find things that I couldn't find because I had a more restricted academic perspective. He would look at a ledger book or in a big account book in a tiny town clerk's office and, and say, why do you think they wrote in chronological order? And he would think a bit and flip to the back where there had been extra pages and find eight pages of notes that had been written at the time about a court case that she was involved in. So without him, I couldn't have done it. I was actually extremely jealous because he found everything I couldn't find. But the second one's that my mother, who... Um, was a white woman who was a, a very accomplished genealogist. She taught classes and was very accomplished. Um, I went to her because one of the owner's names popped up, and I said, this owner looks very familiar. Can we look at your books? She had a four-room archive of her own original research, so I was able, I was very lucky. And we went through her family history, and lo and behold, it turned out that I was descended from the white family that had owned Lucy's husband. And when that happened, everything else started to fall into place. I don't know. I can't explain it. Um, but in the most unlikely places, we would find a fact or a little piece. I ended up taking all the little facts, everything I could glean from the account books, which, by the way, were in um, three kinds of currencies, and they were a lot of barter. So it wasn't very simple. Um, I made... a 
uh, an Excel spreadsheet of every fact I could find, which ended up being a 150-page spreadsheet. And then I started finding patterns uh, because I would look at years. I, I could sort by year and place. I then found uh, copies of 18th century calendars, and I started printing all the things out of the Excel spreadsheet into the appropriate months. And then I laid them out on my living room floor. And I was able to piece together where they were, what they bought and sold, when they were building a house because they were buying timber. I found out that he could read because they bought he bought spectacles and a secretary's guide. They bought three primers, so I know that they taught their children how to read. And that was the context to put it all within. But I couldn't have done it in the way that I had previously thought, that you go to an archive and you find the letters and you put together the life. So it was very much like, like what you were doing as well. You can see why we built this group, because we'll get to Michael next, but it reminds me of, and I may be quoting it inaccurate, but Leon Edel talked about the subject being under a carpet and we kind of feel for it. And I thought particularly the conclusions, spectacles, primers, you can, we pass over these things, but you can build a lot from them if you understand what it is you're seeing as opposed to the archival letters. Michael's joined a group and I particularly was eager to have him join because in some ways, and I may, if I over-exaggerate, please tell me, but your book is fueled by speculation. Uh, it's fueled by speculation, but there's also an incredible amount of fact and research, but it's yes. very highly personal, so I think which might be a sort of bit of an outlier in, in this kind of group, which is focused on large historical presences about really my, the search for this, my father's story. So you're already beginning with something highly personal, but then having to report that out. Yeah. But in doing it, you take us on a ride to learn what you're learning. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is each of us here have a different problem when you find something's lacking. Right. And we were talking before, I mean, if you go to journalism school, they always talk about the peel the onion treatment, where you take the reader along as you peel away the onion, getting things. Michael had certain techniques that he brought to bear in this book, that it's a personal book about finding out what happened to your dad, but you as a writer were clearly in control. You just didn't write it as it occurred. No, and it's, I mean, I think one of the lessons I have you all think about today is, you know, my book was looking for the truth of what happened to my father who died under mysterious circumstances when I was a boy. I had a great amount of first-hand reported material beginning with my mother had kept these meticulous diaries of going back to her first date with my father. So there was all this first-hand material I could count on. What I didn't have was, what was it like? And you don't want to end up in that kind of, had he you know, lived in this town, he would have gone here. I think my approach was informed in some ways by my uh, career as a, as, a, as a magazine editor and writer where you're looking at how can I tell this story all the time? What is the, what is the, you know, and we've got 50 years of new journalism and ways to think about telling a story. And, you know, I did the first draft of this book and uh, I gave it to a friend of mine who's uh, I did f husband of a friend of mine who's a very good reader and someone who was not very attached to it. He's a film executive. And he came back three weeks later and he gave me one of his notes, which cut through me like a, um, a lightning bolt, was he said, you know, I feel like you've succeeded in telling his story, but I don't know anything about what it's like that you to be on this personal journey. 
And, uh, you know, when I thought about it, in terms of, again, like how you want to tell your story, I think, you know, there's this sort of straight-up, exhaustive, and I mean mean that in a well-researched kind of way of you can just lay it all out, or, you know, the reader will also look to be transported and taken places with you, especially if you're time-traveling down the Nile or any of these wonderful places. Um, That's what I think they come to a lot of biography for, is like, take me, not just tell me a life, but take me to a place. Um, So I rewrote it, and I think I came up with this you know, I, I, I had fought so much in the first draft, like, I need to make it this thing and trying to fit it into this structure. And because I was very cognizant of my weaknesses or what I perceived to be weaknesses as an editor who was writing a thing, because I'm used to looking at people's material like holes here, holes here, holes here. But you learn to solve them. And if anything, I think I, I, I sort of came upon this thing, just gave myself permission, and it's an important thing to think about when you're writing um, usually there's a model for what you need to solve uh, and what the thing is lacking. There's probably someone else who faced that. And for me, it was a little bit of, I, I, I make this comparison not as a one-for-one, one, but more of a structural thing. And, and it's, it's a very broad one. But, you know, my book sort of moves between meticulous reported uh, uh, scenes of me in the present day going in search of the story, what happened, and and cre- here I am in Nebraska in 2002 interviewing, you know, my father's best friend from the time they were five years old and getting that story and bringing that to life, and then me wondering, you know, you know, I'm told the story that so you know, the six months before he died, he drove back to that town to see his father and brought his mistress and left, you know, it was, was a weekend fling, you know, leaving. And as a son, I'm like, what was that? Well, I want to imagine that scene. I need to create that scene. I've got elements of it. It's been told to me by people who know it. So, but there I shift into italicized, this is me sort of thinking about what it, what it means to this to me and to this person. And so by that, I mean, the simple comparison is it's a Moby Dick thing, right? You're sort of going to alternate between I've got this fact and now I'm going to go to some fiction. But for me, it was a little bit of, you know, I've got this fact and I'm going to go to poetic conjecture and and because it's, a, it's, it's as much a bio as a memoir for, for me. So it, it's sort of, I just think it's important to think like when you're sitting there wondering how am I going to solve this? There's probably a solution, and you just need to um, allow, give yourself the permission of like, I'm just going to try and write this right now and see where this goes. I mean, Morris's biography of, of, of Reagan, which got sort of creamed when it came out for conjecture and imagining, like, there's something to learn from that, you know. And, and there's, there's, one, there's one fan in the audience of <laughs> someone this morning rose to the defense of Dutch. Right. Let me just open this up to any of you. Um, as I was listening to the answers, I was thinking about we kind of view a dearth of material as a problem, um, but is there a way to use it in the writing in the sense that um, some books I've read, they involve the reader and share the evidence and say, here's what we've got, and it leads me to believe that. I personally don't like that very much, but, um, but what are some of the ways you've handled these things when you've, you come up with, uh-oh, we've got a problem here? Um. In my case, the, the material itself was 
so little in the end. I mean, there was a lot to build around that when I tried to write it, I wrote it five times, um, which I tell my students all the time um, about revision. But as I tried to write it, I was bringing in all sorts of New England history, and this is a battle that happened here and all of that, and it was boring. It really wasn't interesting. But when I made that discovery, then suddenly the book shifted to being the story itself, but the quest for the story. And I think other people have used that, and it sounds like you've done that as well. Um, how did we find things? How would we go on this path? Scenes from our search, um, and then moving into the materials that we we found, and that worked really well. We, for instance, found an entire set of boxes of mouse-chewed 18th century court cases from their little village in Vermont where I was living, tied up with ribbons. Um, we went back to look at them, and OSHA had condemned the building, and we couldn't get at them. And then, um, so that made its way into the book. But um, the my husband was smart enough to realize these were public records and they had to allow him access to the court cases. So what we found out in the court cases was crucial to the book, but the telling of the fact of how do you find the court cases and how do you interpret them and what does that tell you about the people made a huge difference to the progression of the book. You need something besides when you don't have a lot. You need something beside the straightforward chronology of what you've discovered to drive the book forward. And in my case, the engine for that book was how do you find that stuff? And then what do you think about it? And what does, that, what does it mean to you? And I think that made a difference. Um, you know, I found their, their cellar hole and would just go sit there um, and hope that nobody else would find it um, and take stones away or something. But yeah. I was just going to say that... Um... I love those quest books. I love, you know, my quest for Corvo or, you know, J.D. Salinger, Jeff Dyer's D.H. Lawrence book, which is like how to not do your homework and get credit for it. I think you told me to do that. I, yeah, I think I did tell you to do that because would, it would be interesting. I, I, I wouldn't dare to write, I wouldn't dare write one, however. But what I was going to say is that sort of in a corollary to that, asking the question of why something is unavailable or why something is missing or why something has been suppressed can be very fertile. And... I'm not sure if the person who asked the question this morning about missing information is in the audience, but the real answer to that question it occurred to me two seconds after I answered it was that the reason, the way that you can read, for example, the trauma that the Salem witch trials had in 1692 New England is by the resounding silence afterwards when every scrap of paper concerning them disappears or is destroyed or is rewritten from the church record books to the minister's sermon books to the people's diaries. I mean, the year 1692 just didn't exist in Massachusetts if you actually read the information. And that's hugely telling about the burden of shame and guilt that that year carried with it. So... In a way, you know, you're thinking, why don't I have these pages? On the other hand, you have an enormously, um, you, ha you have more than a clue. You have a really interesting piece of, um, of even an interesting sense of the reaction to the, to the events of that year, which um, is arguably more helpful than some of the information might have been. But it strikes me, it leaves you with a writing problem. You've, you've got a lack of things for that year, which is very revealing, as you made the point. But now you've made the point, that's what, two complete sentences. Which can make for a shorter book sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, the folks, to respond to this. Um, my approach, which is uh, boring, is that 
when I've run across conflicting accounts, in the case of Pulitzer, there were three different accounts of where he was in the Civil War. I decided to become a prosecutor, pick which one I thought was right, present that to readers, and then those who were inquisitive could go to the end notes. Because what I didn't like in the past was Pulitzer was standing on this hill. On the other hand, so-and-so uh, believes he was over here, and that yet on the other hand, he could, I, because I think this narrative is so important that to the expense of it, I, I treat myself to the prosecutorial right of presenting one view to the jury, the jury being the reader, and have the end notes for those who want to fuss about it. How have you folks handled those kinds of problems where there's contrary evidence or lack of evidence to finish, finish the spot? Um, I think that to me, you know, it's, it's you know, it's that old thing, right? There's, there's, you have to sort of let go of the idea you're going to find the complete truth, and you, you marshal, you, you look at the facts you're able to assemble, and you find out where they're going to lead you, like a prosecutor or like a reporter uh, in journalism or in, 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 or an investigator. Like you, look at all the facts, and you have to, I think, let go of any pre, -sub, pre, you know, what what you think the story is, and see where the story where the most likely version of that story is going to take you. Um, I think, you know, you, you, and, and facts are the most important thing because even in my book, which, like I say, involved some conjecture, the book would collapse if it weren't built on a, on, on a foundation of extreme reporting, extreme detail, all the stuff that I, as a journalist and, and, a, and an editor, you know, just want in writers as well as pieces that I publish. So it's got to have all that. And then, just to go back to the craft for a second, you're working in a world now that, in, in terms of narrative, there are so many ways that the reader has been trained and educated and what they'll look for and what they'll, what they'll go with you on a story if you, if you say, I'm going to make this reach. I mean, you know, my sort of simple example is Pulp Fiction came out 25 years ago and, you know, when you first saw that in the theater, you're like, wait, what? You know, and it was just chopped up narrative. And then all of a sudden, wait, I don't know what's happening, but I'm sticking with it and I'm going to go. And I think there's different ways where you can assemble the fact and put it out there. And the reader wants to be, it's probably a dirty word here, but entertained a little bit. They want to, and by entertained, I mean like they want, they, they oh, What's, what's, what's happening here? What's the mystery? What are we learning? You know, you want to hook them. And I think there's different ways to structure these things based on the fact as well, where if you say it, as I always say, with that sort of firm hand on their shoulder, like, look over here now. He, Pulitzer's on this hill, and this is what I believe. Like, all right, confidence. You've got confidence in telling it. Hmm. Go ahead. I ran into a really difficult problem just about this speculation, and, uh -huh. um, and I'm going to talk about it now because I don't talk about it too much. Um, when I was doing Frances Hodgson Burnett, I, I knew that her son, the minute she died, had rushed to produce a biography of his mother because he didn't want anybody else to start gossiping about her. Um, I knew that when the previous biographer from, to me, 30 years before, had written it, her, her granddaughters, who had all the materials, had withheld a lot of the material from her. Her great-granddaughter didn't discover it all until she was an adult and was going through family papers and asked her own mother, who was one of those granddaughters, why, why don't we ever talk about her? They were, in fact, had grown up living on the money that she had earned 
by um, all these books she did. She actually did 53 novels. The Secret Garden was one of her last ones. Um, and they said, we don't want to talk about that woman. So I start looking at everything and trying to figure out what's going on. And I discover that she had two failed marriages. The second one was blackmailing her. That she had um, every, almost every one of her friends and traveling companions and close people throughout her life until her old age were gay and lesbian. She went on vacations almost exclusively with these people. Um, when it turned out that it was time to start getting literary agents, she turned to a very famous lesbian literary agent. So of course, I'm thinking, what do I do with this? So I speak to the family and they say, no, you cannot speculate that this was her life. And I said, okay, because they were giving me permission to use all of this incredible material. So what I had to do in the book was lay it all out as I saw them, but I did not call it out in any way. Because um, I did not want the book to be, I outed the author of The Secret Garden um, <laughs> without you know, real firm evidence. Her son had gone through the letters. I mean, I saw that he had marked up some and things had probably gone missing. So when the book came out, um, a friend of mine was in London and listening. There was a bookshop and she was, the radio was on and she heard the people on the radio discussing my Burnett biography and they said, why does this author not realize this woman must have been a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> So you do what you can with what you've got, you put it all out there, and then you let the reader draw the conclusion. Um, but even now, a new edition is coming out, and the families still say, you can't prove any of that, so don't say it. They don't have any objection to it, but they just say, you can't say it's the, the truth, because you can't, there's not a smoking gun. You bring up something that I think we all know, which we all have experienced, which is that feeling of having something you can't put in the book. Yeah, You're absolutely convinced this is true, or you have fairly good evidence that it's true, and you just can't get you know that extra 10 yards to the finish line to, to feel you can, you can adequately um, use it. I, I, when, in answer to Jamie's question, I, I, I'm thinking of two different, and both of them ultimately for me, perplexing situations, one of which was um, Cleopatra's death. And I knew through the whole time I was working on that book that I was going to have a problem because we have two accounts, we have precisely and only two accounts of Cleopatra's death and they couldn't be more different. Um, both of them are written more than 100 years after she dies. One is Plutarch, who's closer in time and the other is Dio. And one is, um, I mean, I think I said in the book, one is Puccini and one is Wagner. I mean, one they're both ridiculously over the top, as we all know, and they all feed the painters for many years thereafter, but they're extremely different. And she's majestic and heroic and, and, and res respectful and dignified in one, and she's a waif um, and a woman who's been worn down and is desperate in the other. And ultimately, she dies twice in the book because I just couldn't figure out a way to reconcile these two very different book, different accounts. And I just realized, you know what? The the only we have these two people. Neither one of them is there. Neither is contemporaneous. Um, this is the best I can do. You no, know, I learned so much. Death scenes are so important in the books. I never thought of having two of them. Brilliant maneuver. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the other was the other was the. And I, I mentioned this earlier this morning. I think the the riddle of why when when Nabokov teaches at Cornell for as he does for a decade when he first comes to America, Mrs. Nabokov is in the classroom with him every single day for every single lecture. And 
the sort of Greek chorus for that book for me were the Cornell students who sat in that classroom. It was one of the most popular courses at Cornell or Nabokov's European Literature course. Ruth Bader Ginsburg sat in that classroom. Any number of writers we've all read sat in that classroom. And all of them had indelible memories of this act which went on between the Nabokovs. And it was pretty hilarious. And they all had different theories as to what Mrs. Nabokov was doing in the classroom, which ranged from he was blind and she was the seeing eye dog, to um, he was allergic to chalk dust, to she was his dictionary if he needed a word. I mean, there were great theories. And so, and I ultimately didn't really know what to do with it all, but I, and I didn't know the answer to the question, so I ended up listing, literally listing the theories, and then for the rest of the chapter, addressing each and every one of them in some roundabout way. And that was a way of sort of just working through the truth and working through the possibilities with the reader. Um, which was perhaps a cop-out, but it seemed to work at the time. That raises a question for me. Um, being a slave to storytelling, I don't want to stop a book and consider evidence and make people realize, oh, I'm reading a book. Did you find that a problem by having listed all these things that this is sort of like a pause and a chat with the, the reader? Um, you know, having never read the book as a real reader, it's, yeah, that's true. it's that's hard a for me to answer well, that let's question. Ask the it's not yeah. a yeah, did all of you, it's a very short it's a fairly short list. It's a rather humorous list in the end, and the last one is she had a gun in her purse. So I figured that was entertaining, which was true, by the way, which was entertaining enough. Um, you're now working on Sam Adams, correct? Which has, I assume, tons of material. And one of the things you'd have is paintings or illustrations. Uh, and this is for all of you, but I'm just starting to say, see, how do you use paintings and photographs? I mean, one of the ways, again, I'm always bringing up things I don't particularly like, it's my taste, but I think it was McCullough's book, at one point he says, looking at this photograph of young Roosevelt, we can see X, Y, and Z, which also leads me to a photograph is a 10-second moment. He might have burped in the next picture. You can't. <laughs> so I've always struggled with how does one use illustrations, and does one refer to them, or do you simply describe the person as if you were there and had seen them? I, I think it, I mean, I, it's hard to generalize. I think it depends a lot on what you have to work with. It's interesting you mentioned it. So there, there isn't a good, there isn't a particularly flattering portrait of Samuel Adams. There's a John Singleton Copley picture, which I would argue is arguably the worst picture that he ever painted. Um, but it is Adams at a crowning moment in his life, so I will certainly address it. it it's, it's, an odd, um, it's an odd thing about the source material. You would think there would be a lot of material. Because Adams, these are the 10 years leading up to the American Revolution, during which Samuel Adams is in his glory and pretty much the one leading the charge. And he's very aware of the fact that what he's committing at this point is treason. And so as to not implicate any of his colleagues, he destroys his papers. So we have this astonishing scene written by John Adams of the two of them in Philadelphia with Samuel Adams literally cutting, this is like, you know, every biographer has a heart attack when you read something like this, cutting up the papers and tossing them out the window. And so, in fact, there is, you know, a certain dearth of material here. That would be a great here. scene. Yeah, except for what it implies. Yeah. Gretchen, what about you in, in terms of illustrations? Well, the first biography I did was of a painter, so obviously it's absolutely central to everything. She was also a very shy painter who didn't show her work, and often the paintings were turned against the wall. So you couldn't always know what she was thinking about it. Was she saying it wasn't good enough? Was she saying, I, I like it, but I don't want anybody else to see it? Um, I, I was really concerned that people who knew her, who were better known painters, did not really embrace her as an artist. 
and what did that say about them when she, Dora Carrington lived for many years with Lytton Strachey and they were all, he was part of the Bloomsbury group. And what did that say about Bloomsbury when they really didn't um, acknowledge her work as being as important to her as their work was to them? Um, Virginia Woolf's sister was Vanessa Bell who lived in many different ways with Duncan Grant, who was also a painter who lived well into his 90s. And um, So what do I say about this shy woman? I, my, my first take had been, I'm gonna use her art to show that she was so talented. Um, but on the other hand, um, did she really think she was talented? I think she did, I think, but she was very ambivalent about it. It wasn't really, um, you know, she wasn't, I don't know that she exhibited um, so um, my first take had been, in my good feminist way, was to say, oh, they didn't support her. Lytton kept her from being the artist she should have been when she made a home for him. He was a homosexual, and he had all these affairs with other people, and yet she was kind of the rock. She held everything together. She created these beautiful homes. She turned to decorative art and did all of these other ways of, of uh, hiving off the kind of work she was, should be really doing. And then I find a letter from him that says, I'm making some money now, please let me have a studio built for you. And then I went, oh damn. You know, he, <laughs> he wasn't the villain. And he, I cannot blame him for what, what she ended up doing with her own art. So what you wanna show is the progression of her, you know, I was lucky enough to find some drawings she did as a young girl. I was able to find some things that she did as an art student and some other paintings. Um, and then um, paintings I thought had disappeared, I found long after the book was done were in private hands and I was able to see some of them. So that, you know, in that case, color plates became a very important part of the book and it was really the best part for me was to have every chapter headed by a drawing because she illustrated all of her letters and with wonderful line drawings and every chapter began with a line drawing from some of her letters in that way that art really threaded its way through through the book and made it clear that she was extremely talented whatever she wanted to say about her own work. Michael in your case you knew the people later in their lives, and you were faced with describing them early on, did you use photographs to try to describe what they looked like in the time you didn't know them? No, you know, for me, I think, I think the, the, the thing with photographs or paintings or anything when you're looking at a book like mine or any other, I, I, you know, I think the, it's, there's, there's the image, there's the surface of it, and I, I think it's important, like, like catch yourself, like, What's the story of that photograph? Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? Who took it? Where were they? What was happening that day? I mean, it's clearly an important moment or something, and it's been preserved. And I think, if anything, it's kind of like a little bit of evidence that you should go and explore. Like, oh, this was taken at this person's party. And, you know, so you, you get a little sort of, no pun intended, but a snapshot of something that is clearly important to people and uh, it's it's a way to start building out a story you know so for me it's I think you look at whether it's an intimate story as I said about like mine uh, what's what's a, what's a story within the story you can tell or if you're looking at you know the that portrait of Teddy Roosevelt 
you know what what was the drama of that sitting or not you know what what how long did it go on i mean there's that great scene uh, i was thinking about as you're talking about um if you've all seen the crown that uh where churchill is sitting for that portrait and i never knew this until i i mean i'd read a lot on churchill but he burns that portrait at the end of it because he hated it so much uh but i mean incredible used used in film for an incredibly dramatic purpose but i think like clearly when i, I Peter Morgan talked about it later, just like he'd found it in the thing. It was a small detail all this time that I, but it provides drama and it, 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 it illuminates character. And I think it's used, you know, don't just look at the surface of the image, but think about what the image is leading you into as a writer that allows you to tell an additional story or stories. Mm -hmm. And then also like, who are the persona that you need to then round up and interview and get report, uh, reporting from or access, if they're dead, access to their, their, their papers. Um, in our description of the panel, we talked about um, that these wonderful folks would talk about their research and share their experience and discuss strategies for connecting the dots. So I'm going to ask each of them to take a second and think about one tip that they might give from their own experience about connecting the dots. Can I give a piece of reassurance as opposed to a tip? Of course. Make us um, feel good. For some reason, you're making me remember this. Um, and I think it was your discoveries that made me think um, that doesn't, you don't always have those you know, serendipitous moments or the congenial spouse. Um, not to say anything wrong with my spouse, but he hasn't ever done that for me. So, um, I think, so I'm suddenly thinking about um, an interview I did with David Herbert Donald, who was the great Lincoln biographer. And I, I think I was doing a piece about how the biographer deals with the previous biographies, because that's kind of interesting to me. I mean, do you cannibalize them? Do you read them? Do you ignore them? And um, whether there's new material and what you do in a, when there is a dearth of new material. And he, and he said in this extremely um, assertive way, Stacy, there are never any um, new answers. There are only new questions. And I just think that was a, that's an extremely reassuring thing to remember when you're on the trail and you don't find anything new. It's really the way you're, you're building your narrative and the view that you're taking with the material and how you're assembling the material and your voice that's really, I mean, there was nothing in Cleopatra that had not been known for hundreds of years. There was no new discovery. There was absolutely, I mean, I used the material that had, had been available since the first century AD and um, that was it. And I just put it together in a way that no one else had done had, had looked at it before. So I just feel like um, sometimes we overestimate, um, we underestimate how much the um, absences can be worth and we overestimate the, 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 the serendipitous finds. Yeah, the serendipitous finds are just, I think, what makes you, I mean, I don't know how many of you have been sitting in an archive at some point and then you hear somebody go, yes! I hate them, <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> but you find that moment where somebody's found some little thing that they've been hoping to find. I guess the advice I might give was not to be afraid of previous biographers because was Virginia Woolf said that every life should be rewritten, is, is going to be rewritten every, what, 25 years or something. It's going to be a different audience and a different take and a different way of interpreting. Um, when I did the Burnett book, uh, the previous biographer was still alive, Anne Thwaite is, is still alive. And she was very nervous when she found out somebody else was doing her book because she thought this was the definitive book and it was done and nothing else would be found. Well, I managed to find some things we ended up being firm friends, and we ended up going on book tour and giving talks together 
uh, both in America and in England. Um, and we would say, oh, where did you find that? And so it, was a, it became a kind of wonderful thing where there was a kind of uh, serendipitous meeting of biographical minds, I think. So don't be afraid of the previous work. Uh, those are both great points. Uh, and I, I agree with them all. I think they're, they're sort of, I would echo them as basically, you know, it's different versions. And I think I said at the beginning is, you can get so obsessed sometimes with what's missing that you just, you know, it's like a piece of glass in your shoe, you won't stop. And, and you're then not seeing what is present and what is in what's present, what's possible. You're not gonna solve it sometimes. And, 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 and there's, you can write the most brilliant book and someone else can say, well, I think you missed this, this, and this. And it's gonna happen because you're, it's, it's one person's perspective of what it is. And so trust yourself that you've researched it and reported that you feel good. And if there's, sometimes I think if there's a gap there, not to get all woo-woo on it, but find in, in, in the weakness is your strength, the absence is the presence. And, and sometimes you just almost have to steer into it or address the reader or make like, but if it's, if it's going to be this thing that you can solve, I think you've got to eloquently and inventively on the page address that. And, and, and the reader not only will forgive you, they'll probably be, yeah, this is cool. Thanks for taking me inside this process. Uh, because I think in too many not well done biographies, um, you know, everyone wants to, this voice of God thing. You're not God. You're, you're simply trying to tell a story as beautifully and, uh, as I say, like sort of like hook that reader and make them think, wow, that was pretty, a pretty great story that you told me. So. And one of the peculiarities of our craft, of course, is in most cases, unlike a murder mystery, most of our readers have some idea of what's going to happen to the person. And so the way you tell it becomes so important, and the way you handle these questions becomes so important. That's why it's good to make them die twice. Yeah, I, <laughs> trust me, I'm planning on it. Uh, mine triple the births. Um, let's thank these folks. They've solved 16 problems for us. You just heard highlights from a panel discussion during BIO's 2019 conference, featuring authors Stacey Schiff, Gretchen Holbrook-Grazina, and Michael Haney. James McGrath Morris moderated. BIOS Conference was held on May 18th at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great day.